This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Being started, welcome to TGIF DCT. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club. For some of you, that's live here on Clubhouse, where we gather every Friday, 12 to 1. For some of you, that will be through your favorite podcast channel. Whichever way you're connecting with us, be sure to give this a follow or subscribe so that you can stay connected when we have updated content that we're sharing right now every week on Fridays. May add some occasional additional content uh, during the course of the year. If you're new to the club and you're here on Clubhouse or you're dropping in on Clubhouse at a later date, feel free to click the Decentralized Trials Club. You can follow what uh, content is coming up on the calendar. You can access replays there as well. We follow all sorts of different topics on this club. They're always related to challenges around making clinical research more accessible. Those topics come from you, the folks in our community, and so if there is a topic that you'd love to see us cover in the weeks ahead, just drop a line to myself, to Jane Miles, to Amir Kalali. We'll make sure to get that added into the schedule. And as always, click around here in the room, see who else is with you, not just the voices you'll hear from on the stage right now, but the others that are here in the room with you. They share your interest in today's topic. They could be another great connection for you to help you in your work, in your career, or otherwise. Amir, what do you think? Should we get things going? Absolutely. And I'm in the U.S. this week, not home, but uh, at least in the same time zone. So I'm really pleased to be here. And and is that just a brief stop in the, in the time zone? Yeah. So I'm in Austin for South by Southwest. It's already been very weird in the first morning. So I'm uh, going to enjoy that for the weekend, yes. Fabulous. Well, we'll look forward to hearing some updates from South by Southwest, either following you on LinkedIn or maybe when we gather again next Friday. Yep. Lovely. Thanks. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, for today's topic, we are covering the Form 1572, which is such a seemingly benign, almost mundane topic. What could possibly be interesting to talk about a form from the FDA that we've used for decades just to document where things are happening in our study. You know, that form worked for us pretty darn well for a long time. It's where we document study activities that are taking place so that FDA inspectors know where to go um, when they're going out and making sure that uh, procedures have been followed from a GCP safety data integrity perspective. 
but is that form actually getting in the way of some of our newer approaches for clinical trials that are meant to help make participation more accessible, but perhaps the idea of just writing down addresses where things are taking place is getting harder and harder. We dropped a couple of examples of what that could mean on LinkedIn, but I'm really looking forward to hearing from today's guests and from all of you in the audience. We'll follow our usual format for the first half hour. We'll be uh, fortunate to welcome two guests with us, John Campbell from Walgreens and Shalon Begg from Science 37. At the bottom of the hour, we'll open up the room and hear from all of you. And so if you have questions or experiences that you'd like to share. Get ready with those for um, half past. Also feel free to take advantage of the chat here. It always seems to be getting more and more active conversation there. And so if questions are jumping to your mind and you don't want to jump on stage or you don't want to uh, wait for those while it's front and center, feel free to add it to the conversation right there. Well, why don't we get things started? John, welcome to TGIFDCT. For folks that haven't met you before, do you mind coming off mute? Introduce yourself and what it is you do by day. Absolutely. Hey everyone, I'm John Campbell. I'm the head of decentralized trials for Walgreens. Uh, so in my day job, what I do is I try to find new ways of making trials more accessible for patients uh, across over 9,000 communities that Walgreens is a part of. Um, so in a lot of our conversations on a day-to-day -day basis, questions around oversight and the 1572 come up, and I'm excited to talk through them with you guys today. Fabulous. Great to have you here, John. And I'm not sure if it's for others, but you are a little softer than, um, Let's try that. than is the that mics better? of others. Oh, <laughs> that is radically better, John. Um, so you were mentioning you are leading decentralized activities over at Walgreens and helping to make... Uh, to take advantage of how, how many communities did you say you're engaged in uh, as an entity? Yeah, absolutely. Walgreens is in 9,000 uh, communities across the U.S., and we have about 130 million people a year coming to Walgreens. Um, so we have very, very large and active patient base, uh, including about 10 million people a day who come into our stores. Um, so as we think about decentralized trials, as we think about research in general, the question for us becomes, how do we start to address some of those core issues that face the industry and find ways to make research more accessible for communities that have traditionally been excluded? Thanks so much, John. It's great to have you here. And Shalon, we've, uh, we're always glad to have you back. Uh, for folks that haven't had a chance to connect, come on off mute and introduce yourself for this community today. Great, thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm Shalon Vig. I'm a medical oncologist. I'm the vice president for oncology at Science37. Um, I spent uh, more than 10 years performing clinical trials at an academic medical center prior to this role. Um, and I guess, what do I do all day? I try to figure out how we can use the tools that we have available to us now to as, as was said earlier, improve clinical trial access to a point where you can participate in cancer clinical trials no matter where you are. And then how do we, we get to that, that spot? Fabulous. Thanks for, thanks for being here. So, John, if, if, you, if you don't mind, maybe we'll get started um, over in your corner. Um, yes, we were mentioning at the outset, 1572 has always been pretty straightforward. We write down addresses where things are taking place, and that's where um, inspectors and others know where to go. 
Well, why is this starting to feel more complicated? And in particular, you mentioned you're having conversations around this just as you're thinking about the Walgreens footprint today. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one of the core um, underlying assumptions of the 1572 and a lot of our infrastructure that's in place for ensuring compliance and quality in trials is predicated on that idea that a, a site is a physical location, right? One location with one investigator overseeing a team that remains static over the course of a study. Um, and the ways in which we are building trials today are a lot more complex than that. Um, they take place across a number of settings. They include lots of stakeholders, some of whom are direct staff, some of whom are contractors, all of whom have varying levels of responsibility as part of that study and varying levels of contact with the patients. And so often the question becomes really, how do we ensure appropriate oversight and uh, appropriate controls on the study, much more than how are we ensuring compliance with right, one form that's intended to serve that purpose? Thanks, John. Um, and Shalon, I mean, even just in your in your past life prior to Science 37 in oncology, I would imagine this would start to creep up when we were thinking about different imaging locations or other places where diagnostic procedures in a cancer trial might take place just to try to make those closer to patients, but starting even there perhaps to run into uh, which ones end up on a 1572 and how do we keep pace with all the different places where a patient may want or need to go in order to make participation feasible? Yeah, um, where are the imaging taking place? Where are blood tests being drawn? Or where are they being processed? Is it a central lab that is reflected on the 1572 or other locations? Um, there's actually a lot of um, thought that even goes into who's listed on the 1572. I dropped the link uh, in terms of investigators. Um, I dropped the FDA guidance in the chat for anyone who's interested. And in preparation of our conversation today, I was refreshing my, uh, my own knowledge. Um, and there is a lot of clarification within the document on how to approach these, which probably covers about 80 to 90% of the questions that we have to ask ourselves, but there's always that gray zone and that gray zone seems to be um, uh, evolving as the type of studies that we're doing and how we're doing it continues to evolve. I would imagine, um, Shalon, even as we're considering approaches like video and enabling patients to have a video visit, um, if that's entirely video-based or remote-based, um, what, what's, the, what's the location that we should start to put down? What happens when investigators are seeing patients from their car or from home to home um, with these connections that are possible today? Um, and that probably even gets even more complicated as we're thinking about mobile sites, sites on wheels, where the, the address could be different theoretically every day. Yeah, I think it was in one of the conversations here at this clubhouse where somebody raised the, the, the theoretical model that when you're doing a televisit, is the visit happening at the clinic or at the patient's home? Are you taking the visit to the patient's home or bringing the patient in virtually to your office? <laughs> so I, 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 again, I don't think anyone has clear answers for this, but the guidance on telemedicine 
um, seems to be pretty non-controversial that those activities seem to be taking place at uh, the facility where the investigator is is present. But I can imagine situations where the investigator is at their own home, logging in on a televisit through their organization, and the patient is not not present either. So there are, again, other gray areas to to, to think about. I would imagine once upon a time, we could have even said, well, it's where source data resides, that the place where source data exists is is effectively the the the, the site for that purpose of an address. But e even that is increasingly living in a cloud and where, where you don't necessarily have to go to one physical place just to be able to uh, log in and, and see the, the source data and to have traceability around activities that might have been performed. Um, Jane, Amir, I don't want to monopolize John and Shalon. Questions on your mind on today's topic? Amir, you chime first. I'll come in later. Sure. Um, just going off me. Uh, it's been quite a few years since I was on the 1572. I guess uh, my question that you started with, Craig, is the way trials have evolved. Um, and it's very kind of Sean to put the actual document in the chat so everyone can see that. I mean, what are the specific areas that we think, does there need to be any change? I mean, looking at that document, I guess is my question. Okay, so I'll just chime in with some um, insights I gained last fall, specifically from physicians about their concerns about held, being held accountable for oversight, particularly when they didn't have a role in choosing the service uh -huh. provider they were working with. And yep. EMA has put that some statement about that in their guidance. And I never really thought about it until it got brought up in these discussions I was in. But I, I did really understand now that the physician feels accountable, not just for what's happening in the trial, but for the overall clinical care of the patient, and yet not in, I'm going to use air quotes, control of that. So I, I think that's one of the sticky situations people are trying to figure out in how we address this in a DCT model. So I'm curious, John and Shalon, if you've solved for that. No, I, I mean, I think that's exactly the question. And as we think about what's needed going forward, I, I think for, for the investigators themselves, but also for sponsors, there's really a need to create a framework for, for oversight and, and to create something that allows for um, the investigators to have a clearer picture of what their responsibilities are on a study and how that fits into some of these <clears throat> broader, more decentralized approaches where, you know, are they, how are they responsible for a home health visit, for example, through a contractor that they've never met and that they have no control over, right? Um, how are they responsible for all kinds of components of the study that may or may not actually have appropriate tools in place for them to oversee? Um, I, I feel like starting with the starting with the investigator and starting with the site is just one piece of it. We really need to think about the tools that we're developing for oversight and then the ways in which we require adequate resourcing on studies to enable that oversight. Thanks, yeah, and the other the other sort of 
angle for this is the delegation of responsibility log, and that is not as well regulated. I don't. It's not even a regulated document. Um, but while I think about the DOR as a tool that can um, protect the investigator, it can also be a perceived as a tool that is putting unnecessary or unreasonable expectations on the investigator. The 1572 document, as is right now, does clearly state that the responsibility is on the investigator to make sure that they're delegating it to, they're delegating tasks to people who are adequately trained um, and, uh, and, 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 if the FDA walks into the door, and I think Jane, that's what what, what you were pointing at. If the FDA walks to the door for an audit, and there are audit findings for what somebody may have uh, missed, um, a partner may have missed. Like who's on top of that? Uh, who, who's 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 that FDA letter addressed to? And there have been instances where the FDA has come and has allowed for a separate 1572 to be instituted to oversee the DCT components so that the appropriate oversight tracks to the appropriate um, service. But when you think about how many different ways one can slice and dices and what the different permutations are going to be, um, I, I don't think that there is a, a clear formula to, to describe this today. So can I dig in on that for a second? When you talk about a 1572 specifically for the DCT services, I'm, I know in my past, we've actually put a 1572 in place for a virtual or a meta site. Is that what you are thinking about, Sean, or something more? Um, there, there has been precedent set where for certain components that are done for patients who are enrolled from brick and mortar sites, certain procedures such as the home-based activity and um, dosing and bedside evaluation of patients, um, the, the FDA provided a structure for those DCT components to report into a different 1572 than that of the uh, principal investigator at the site. That doesn't always relate one-to-one -to, -one to how the budget is structured or the IRB's flow or uh, or what the DOR looks like, but it was successful in providing oversight or enabling oversight to the party that was performing those activities, which was in this case, the dosing of medications at home. I've seen that or actually taken that same approach when integrating DCTs into uh, traditional AMCs that had very conservative IRBs. It's a lot of acronyms there um, that it really did not want to allow for any study conduct by anyone who was not staff of the institution. And so a lot of times we end up building out very complex structures that allow us to get at what should be a very simple problem in order to meet the the compliance component of it without a real focus on 
the the goals of compliance, right? Which end up being patient safety and data quality. You know, for you know, purposes of this conversation, Jane, I also just wanted to uh, drop that, you know, I don't think any of us are looking to scrap the 1572, right? The, the, of the 1572 is a place to document the um, competencies, the training, the evidence, the qualification that a, a person serving as the investigator is fit to do so are essential. And we, we, we need investigators to be clear that they know what they're signing up for in terms of their commitments. I think it's really just the granularity that is a bit of a challenge for people today. And, and part of the reason that that's material is it makes it a reason for people to be hesitant and cautious to the point of saying no, saying no to an opportunity that can improve access for patients simply because they don't know what to do with a required form. And I think that's part of what we need to demystify and remove some of the perceived obstacle or risk attached to it. It's not so much that we, we don't want oversight or we don't want documentation of the qualification of an investigator. Um, we just need from a tactical perspective to demystify what should people do when they're taking some creative approaches with good oversight attached with qualified investigators that improve access, but it just doesn't fit in the boxes on a form that we've relied on for decades. Jane, did I step on you there? No, never. Um, I was just thinking that I'm reminded of exactly the same problem running fully brick and mortar studies a generation ago, where we had um, central reading facilities and we had local radiologists and central radiologists. So in some ways, the problem isn't different. And we in those days took the conservative approach of putting everybody on the darn form. But that didn't mean we put the, the room number where the phlebotomy draw was being done. So I think there's a little bit of common sense to be applied. And then if there are questions we just don't know how to answer, I'd love to hear them so that we can work on them um, in some upcoming work we're gonna do within the DTRA. In this example that you're calling out with oncology, I think is uh, surprisingly a great um, starting place for this conversation. One of the reasons I'm so glad we have Shalon here and with us today, the 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 idea that we can look our our, our cancer trials have have always required different diagnostic procedures, whether imaging or, or phlebotomy or otherwise, um, and we know that patients have places to acquire images far closer to home with equally competent hardware that we can um, that we can surface data from. But you know, does do we have to rush and fill out a fifteen seventy two every time a patient points to a closer imaging center that we want to use to support the trial? Or if phlebotomy can be done closer to home, do we have to keep adding more and more addresses? Uh, not just those room numbers, but just even the, these more and more locations that may be attached. Really interesting questions there, Jane. And, and Shalon, I don't know if you have other thoughts or perspective as you're thinking about oncology within the, the Metasite model. 
I mean, for, for a lot of the components, like I found all the answers in this document that I shared, right? The imaging center where the imaging has happened needs to be on the 1572. The central lab that's doing the tests needs to be at the 1572. The patient's home address does not need to be on the 1572 if the protocol says that it can be a home visit. But then I think about aspects. So so again, so th those are sort of clearly defined lines and, and I think um, while they may be burdensome, they have value um, and they're required. But then the gray zones are, what if somebody is in their RV across state lines in a national park? Like that's still their home. Um, the gray lines are, what about a nurse performing technical activities versus someone performing something within their scope of license versus a phlebotomist? Um, and, and we do get a lot of questions around how those are handled and it does require individual discussions based on what the protocol um, is requiring and what the needs of that visit are going to be and whether we consider them to be part of the normal activities that are done or not. At a brick and mortar site, we went through an exercise on whether the radiologists, we, we moved to central review of imaging Jane, for resist measurements for oncology trials. And we had to have a dedicated conversation on whether those radiologists who are performing the tumor measurements need to be on our 1572 or on the protocols or, or on the DORs. And we separated the process of tumor measurement from determining whether someone has progressive disease or stable disease. We kept the ascertainment of the endpoint which is the, is the cancer worse or not to the investigators on the 1572, but we delegated tumor measurements, which was a technical step of just measuring the size of the lesion. And we did not feel that that was required, uh, that those people were required to be listed as investigators. So, um, so there are some level of conversations that again need to be had based on, you know, is it an endpoint or not? And is it within the scope of activity or not? But you know, even that even that phlebotomy question, right? If there's a central lab and there are lots of places where specimens are being acquired, and the the concept in the fifteen seventy two instructions that we don't have to list, um, you know, every satellite location. Um, well, why is that different for a medical image if that's being acquired at lots of satellite locations? But just like there's a central lab for my other specimens, to your point, there's a central lab for my imaging. Um, so do I have to list every every satellite location for for any specimen, image or or biologic uh, or otherwise? That that's great. As I interpret the document right now, they don't think those are equivalent. And when I think about most of the imaging that takes place for oncology, it is standard of care imaging. It's the regular CT scan or MRI that somebody would be getting for their cancer evaluation. It's not a technical scan that requires phantom scans and credentialing and uh, QCing at the site. And I think, you know, in terms of areas to simplify, this could be one. And the protocols and the resist measurements require that the Images for an individual patient are collected in a consistent manner so that we can do cross-scan comparisons, period. Um, and 
and then that could be done at the CT scan. Those images can be acquired at the, you know your local strip mall <laughs> CT scan center, and, and they'd be pretty high quality scans, and you can get what you need in most cases, right? Now, if it's a rare sequence for a brain tumor or some type of radio imaging that's more qualitative in nature, that's different. But in large situations, we should be able to get that done wherever. And it does seem overkill for, for those cases. John, just building on Shalon's point, is that the right direction, perhaps, if we're thinking about engagements around 1572s with, uh, with regulators and others? The, this theme that there are standard of care or routine care activities that qualified healthcare providers are are delivering every day. Um, phlebotomists are doing draws, radiology techs are doing routine care imaging procedures. If the study has routine care activities, can we treat those separately from the more sophisticated study specific activities that do require additional training or competency and, and should therefore be you know, captured in a place like a 1572? Is, is that the line we should be trying to separate? Yeah, absolutely. And I think where where the gray area lies is when you have uh, some very basic additional data collection that's happening in those settings, right? And other non-standard of care um, components of a trial that might be very simple. Um, you know, I, I think of a lot of what we do with electronic delegation logs and the ways in which we can satisfy the requirements for those. Um, without requiring kind of the, you know, the, the standard piece of paper that gets signed by everybody for the counter signature. And again, I, I think the important part on this is creating uh, a level of transparency around where a study is being conducted. And that to, to a certain extent, a form, a form like the 1572 needs to, needs to give way to really a, a process for logging over time and for um, taking accountability for where a study takes place. And there are, I think, a lot of ways that we can do that that will create the end goals of the document, right? To ensure both oversight and transparency in operations and studies. Um, and I don't think those solutions are, I don't think they'd be difficult to implement. They just require some level of consensus and then sign off from regulatory. Thanks, John. For those that are just joining us, welcome. You've you've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club, whether it's on Clubhouse or your favorite podcast platform. We do gather live every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, to cover different topics related to decentralized trials, and those topics come from you, the members of our community. So remember, if you have a topic you'd love to see us cover in the weeks ahead, drop a line to myself, Amir Kalali, Jane Miles, and we'll be happy to get you added to that cycle. This week, we're talking about the Form 1572 and if and where it may be becoming a barrier to some of the innovative approaches that are meant to make research participation more accessible. 
This week, we've got Shalon Begg joining us from Science 37, together with John Campbell from Walgreens and our usual co-host here with myself, Jane Miles, and Amir Kalali. This is the time of day when we open up the room. And so um, if you have a thought, a question, an experience that you'd like to bring forward, feel free to tap that little hand-waving icon. If you're with us live on Clubhouse, we'll pull you up on the stage. Jane, maybe in the meantime, I'll ask you, what's going on in the chat thread over there? Any good questions or experiences coming through that you've had a chance to see? Yep, a couple of great questions here. So one is around, well, how could we write protocols differently to help clarify this question? Um, and I'd love to hear from people who have tried that. And also, um, if it is a standard of care procedure and that's being done by the patient's regular physician or community doctor, but the PI is still documenting everything, where do you account for that? And I have an opinion, but I don't have the answer. So I think those are two really interesting themes that are coming out here in the chat. Thank Who wants so to bring them Shala? up to stage? <laughs> well, uh, again, there's, there's just, there just isn't one answer. Um, how can we use a primary care physician's note? How can a PI use a primary care physician's note for data? Now, if the physician is describing a rash or pain or diarrhea, and you have enough information, you can e extract that data and, and account for that on, on the AE log. But if it's an endpoint and there are certain aspects that need to be evaluated, um, uh, a certain scoring system that needs to be uh, adopted or, or applied to that situation, um, I'm thinking of depression scores or uh, any quality of life aspects, those cannot be delegated to an investigator, uh, to, to, a, to a physician unless they are delegated as an investigator and that's still the, the, the investigator's responsibility. That's not to say if, and we face this in oncology when you know we enroll, and this is same for people who are caring for trial patients at, an invest, at, at a brick and mortar site or, uh, or not, is if someone falls sick and they're admitted to a local hospital, um, we collect the ER notes and the discharge summary and the progress notes, and we extract what we can from it and, and, and report to the best of our abilities. But during that admission, we can't really ask the hospitalist to, hey, could you like fill this form and let me know what you think about X, Y, and Z because it's an endpoint for the trial. So it becomes um, different. They can do whatever they need to care for the patient at that time and we'll come in um, after the fact and, um, and extract that information that's required for the study. And Shalan, to your point, that's exactly what I used to do in brick and mortar studies, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I guess, why am I coming back to that? Cause I often wonder, are we putting in a higher standard or setting up more complexity than we need to based on what we've done for a long time? So um, when we think about um, 
what 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 the future of of the, the the trial industry is going to look like, and what problem everyone on the call right now is looking to um, to, to to answer is how can we make it easier for people to participate on trials? And I think everyone agrees there's no one solution, and there's not no one tool, and um, and and um, we we have to try different models to to figure it out. Um, but being able to, so if we just riff off of the imaging example, the the having clarification is 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 a is is a big or, or lack of clarification is a big barrier to adopting new um, uh, strategies um, because for someone who may not be comfortable or familiar with some of these questions it's just easier for them to say um, it's just easier for them to say no and and we know that that can impact uh, the performance of uh, of brick and mortar sites as as well as folks who are trying to present different models as well as our sponsors who want their trials completed in in good time and our communities that want the studies reported out in good time um, and I think for folks who do this a lot, we realize that 90% of the time, the regulation or the guidance that a brick and mortar site is following is the same guidance that we're following. And, and we do try to press that uh, to, to sponsors when we speak with them. But it's always those anecdotes that um, that come up in these meetings. Well, what do you do in you know exactly that situation where someone's on their RV across state lines at a, natural par a national park and now what are you gonna do? <laughs> and um, and well, we figure it out, um, and and when we look at the guidance and we interpret it, and and we we do what we what we're trained to do is is to be investigators and and clinicians and 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 make those judgment calls. Um, and as we get more experience, I think these will get codified in um, in, um, in in regulatory documents and and other sort of bodies of truth uh, that that exist. Um, around us. John, I'm sure you hear a lot of what if scenarios as well. How do you how do you tend to na uh, navigate those? Uh, I mean, I'm sure for every scenario you've already considered every uh, every protocol, every engagement, every team will probably come up with yet another what if. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I think it's one where I know I was having a conversation in the chat with, with Brad about it. I, I think a lot of these questions end up coming back to how do we eliminate a lot of the ambiguity around what is or isn't allowable? I, I mean, I think one of the reasons why we've been able to um, to move forward with home health as opposed to other settings has really been that people were able to do it during COVID. They have some level of familiarity with it, and they feel like they're able to to repeat what they did the last time with small iterations from there. But, but absent dialogue with regulators in terms of the, the real purpose of, uh, of the 1572 in this case, but a lot of these documents, right? And what they're really looking for, it becomes hard to convince sponsors um, to take different approaches. For us, often the conversations that we're having are with um, large health systems, academic medical centers, even you know other decentralized trial vendors where they're trying to figure out how to make it easier for patients to participate in trials. 
and ultimately where most of the complication comes aside from say the budget considerations ends up being around oversight and what the relationship is between a location where somebody's doing a simple blood draw and and the site and the investigator um and i don't think there's one model that will will address all of it and it ends up being very protocol specific um, but it's, I think it's one where there are simple pragmatic steps that we can take at a protocol level. And then there are kind of clear needs when it comes to working with FDA to determine what they really value um, coming out of these discussions. Amir, other thoughts or reflections based on what you're hearing so far in the conversation? Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if we can uh, sort of zoom out a little bit and just think about kind of this is not just the 1572 sort of issue. It's the speed of tech versus speed of, speed of regulation and government. Um, do we think, you know, we're in a place where we're doing better with the regulators in terms of them getting feedback and being able to move on it. I mean, it's interesting. I was I actually had a call with Rob Califf and a lot of the things he talked in the stat article interview, which some of you may have seen, uh, which sort of came up, which was he was much more concerned about one and not being able to recruit into the FDA to senior positions because of just a plus politicization of those positions uh, and a lot of other misinformation issues. And so they seem to be kind of quite distracted with a lot of political stuff. I just wonder on a kind of a more practical level, do people feel enough to love to open it up to others in the call? Do we feel where we are? You know, we had through the era of like Bakul with his digital, uh, you know, center of excellence where they did the pre-cert and, you know, there was a real effort to try and be proactive about thinking about, you know, how to move faster. I wonder how people feel about where, how we're doing on that front. I mean, I, I found the regulators to be very interested in understanding this space and for making themselves available to answer questions as they come up. We are expecting DCT guidance to new DCT guidance to show up in the next couple of weeks or months. Yep. I'm sure we'll have another conversation around that. And for me, it's very encouraging to 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 hear the regulators are are thinking about about this aspect in a in a forward-looking way and i i think that we're not asking for any leniences on these documents we're asking for clarification for as many of the situations that we know we're going to face so I completely agree when you sort of deal one-to-one -one with FTA folks, they're very trying to be very helpful. I guess my question is, do we think they have the processes that are flexible, agile enough to really kind of cope with the speed of things that could change based on new technology? All right. I think a lot of it comes back to, again, there's a, there's just a real way when engaged with FDA, they tend to um, take a very high level. And um, I, I don't want to say simplistic view, but, but they'll have a clear set of priorities. People say, we, we really want you to ensure the following things, right? 
um, the forms are really, and the processes that we have in place are really just ways of us standardizing that as much as we can. But, you know, at the end of the day, we want to know X, Y, and Z, you know, whether that comes to the efficacy of a treatment, the operations, those pieces. Um, and I think there's a lot of concern on the operation side with the particular mechanisms that exist currently, as opposed to those, um, those broader discussions that Amir, I think you're talking about. And, and, the, and the question becomes how to, how to align the conversation between the two that allows for people to have some level of confidence that what they're hearing out of FDA aligns with what they'll be told when they actually go forward with a submission. Because I, I think that's one of the concerns is there's a tendency to, to hear one thing and then to interpret it and then to and then to be told essentially, oh, hey, that's not exactly what we meant. <laughs> so people end up taking a very conservative approach with, for obvious reasons, for anything that involves FDA. Um, and I think this is one of those areas where regulators want to engage in dialogue um, and they, they want to see significant innovation. It's just a matter of creating the right context for those conversations. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I know my therapy area, I've definitely seen that there's been some discrepancy between some public statements in, say, conferences and then what's been said at, you know, actual um, sort of meetings with the sponsor. So uh, it, it is a bit of a challenge always, you know, trying to predict whether that same position will stick. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then there are, you know, there are different groups in FDA, each of it, each of which will have a different interpretation or different priorities. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, some of it really can be boiled down to misunderstanding, right, of, of things that were plainly stated, just due to the, um, right, the level of distance that FDA has to maintain. So I, I completely agree. I think it's a good time. Actually, that's a great setup to to do a couple of quick shout outs. Uh, as Shalon mentioned, we are expecting uh, guidance from FDA momentarily. Um, this was guidance that was a commitment from the omnibus spending bill approved back in December, but was in progress well before then. Folks can get a preview at some of the topics that uh, Leonard Sachs discussed from the FDA at the DTRA annual meeting by clicking over at the DTRA.org website, click annual meeting in the upper right. You can see the session that included um, uh, Dr. Sachs discussing that guidance that's forthcoming. I think we can also get a good preview of what's going to be in that guidance by looking over at Europe and the EMA recommendations that were published in December of last year and probably give us a good clue of some of the things that are to come there. Also call out that ASCO and FDA are working uh, and we're supporting them from DTRA on this topic of 1572 clarity in oncology studies. So stay tuned for clarification coming there. Jane, is it worth mentioning some of the things DTRA is starting to pick up around 1572s and even some of the alternative uh, site model work? Sure thing. We're just getting ready to kick off two smaller teams we're calling collabs. That's collaborations. Um, focused on 
pretty narrow topics. One of which is what is getting in the way of using DCT methods with the 1572 and other regulatory documents. And that should kick off in the next week or so. The second is if you're going to consider using an alternative site model, what do you need to think of about identifying when they fit, how to qualify them, what training and oversight requirements need to be put in place. And remember, these will just be recommendations, not regulations. But I think we have a group of very invested stakeholders who really want to get into the weeds and make some recommendations. So if you are involved with DTRA or would like to be in these topics sound of interest, we, uh, we have a, uh, an email account, secretariat at dtra.org, or you can always click through on the website, dtra.org, to let the team know if those areas are of interest to you and you'd like to play a role there. One thing I want to call out about these new opportunities is we are trying to keep the scope fairly focused so we can get lots done in a reasonable amount of time, reasonable being like three, four months. So if you're interested, you needn't think it's a forever commitment, although you might just get so inspired you don't want to stop. So the, the expectation there will be it's, it's something of a sprint and then ideally there'll be some other sprints and other areas that get kicked off so you're not, you're not signing up a kidney in order to, uh, to participate here. Righto, exactly. So we've got just a couple of minutes left. John, it, it looked like from the chat, um, you had mentioned that if you had a wish list, that maybe there would be a couple of simple wishes as related to today's topic that we could, that could make the environment easier, more clear, or better. Um, do I have that right? Do you have any wish list items on today's topic? As I fumble to try to find the, the mute button here. Um, I, I mean, again, I, I think having a, a dialogue, you know, both both in this setting and with the regulators about what we're really trying to solve for, and then implementing some simple processes to be able to achieve those goals um, is, is step one. Again, I, I think the 1572... Um, that obviously serves an important purpose within trials, but it's a starting point. And when we think about how we ensure, you know, appropriate oversight as part of trials, especially within decentralized trials, I, I think the reality of, of where trials are heading and the complexity of operations as part of those trials will require us to build much more robust tools. And the more that we can um, create consensus around what those tools should be, the more we'll be able to achieve the, the kinds of goals we've been talking about today beyond, you know, hey, do we need to put every site on the form? Um, and I think if we're focused on the, the end goals of these processes, it, it will become a lot easier to find the correct recommendations in terms of how to modernize 1572, how to think about oversight in general, how to think about non-traditional 
components of trials and how we ensure really appropriate oversight of them. Um, and so I, I'm going to put all of those on an envelope and send them to Jane. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's one where the proposed topics for the Pillow Labs are exactly right in, in that regard. And I think there's a lot of room for us to, to quickly answer a lot of these questions. Thanks, John. My chance to fumble for that mute button. Why is it so small? Or why are my <laughs> thumbs so big? Shalon, what, what's on your wish list? I mean, you, you did a great job articulating how we how we are navigating the instructions and, and interpreting the expectations today. But what would be on your wish list in terms of things we could do or uh, magic wands we could wave that could actually make it easier? Yeah, I'm trying to go back to the question that you posed at the beginning on does the 1572 need updates or clarifications? And Ted in the in the comments has said that as these clarifications come out, it'll probably raise even even more questions um, after the fact. And I think that's the whole point of these conversations is to bring out the the sticky points and and discuss the situations where. Um, everything is working, you know, sort of to Jane's earlier point that um, a lot of the stuff that we're doing and the core tenets of uh, clinical uh, trial activity remains the same um, for, for and as it should. And, and do I think that the 1572 um, is a barrier for clinical trial access and um, um, and 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 sort of truly, you know, uh, is the 1572 limiting access for clinical trials? Um, I, I think it is a factor, um, and I think it comes down to not just the updates on the 1572 or what our wish list is, but it's about communicating these to um, investigators, to sponsors, to uh, people who want to participate in clinical trials. So so that it it really becomes a part of the um, natural conversation that's happening around clinical trials and you know i think the the world that we all are looking for is that looking forward to is a world where we don't think about these tools as being um, distinct and all being part of the same uh, clinical trial process and updating these regulatory documents um, are just steps towards that goal Amir? Um, sorry, I'm trying to, yeah, I'm, I'm muted. Um, I'm also trying to think uh, today, we, we're kind of, I'm a little distracted with the fact that California just closed down Silicon Valley Bank. They had a dinner here last night, uh, South by Southwest, and that's going to have a bit of a ripple effect in startups. I think there's a lot of things distracting us at the moment, is all I can say, <laughs> which is kind of, Bizarre, right? It's it's a very fair point, right? We the and maybe that's a topic for a coming week. Just the the volatility in the macro environment today, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act's impact on big pharma and others with their forecasted reimbursement for biologics, and what does that mean for their pipelines? Whether it's the funding environment for small and mid-sized biotechs, and mm -hmm. what does that mean for their progress? Whether the large pharma that are 
holding back on cash right now and perhaps if if study starts are really being put off or delayed as some CROs have have put out with cautionary forecasts there there's a lot of uncertainty in the environment today and as you point out that's not unique just to those in pharma and clinical research as we see with the uh the headlines today with silicon valley bank yeah you know uh talking about the inflation reduction act which i guess is more directly impactful for maybe our world um next week i'm chairing a meeting where the ra uh, capital folks have been most vocal about that uh, are giving a whole session about it. I'll, I'll uh, see if we want to invite the, the speakers to maybe come to a clubhouse because I do think it's still confusing for some people to really truly understand what the implications of the Inflation Reduction Act are on drug development, specifically, you know, for different types of companies. Uh, so that might be a good topic for us to definitely look at because I think there's still a bit of confusion around that for sure. Um, yeah. No shortage of distractions in the environment and some of them, you know, material for those of us that are doing work that banks on pipelines moving forward. Jane, yeah. any any final remarks, perspectives on the topic for today? Maybe just to hold the date because sometime, let's say near mid-year, we will probably come back from that collab with some initial ideas, recommendations for feedback. So we'll look forward to that. That's Don't... a great point, right? <laughs> that, you know, it's uh, how can this clubhouse community be part of the feedback process? You know, we, we at DTR had the opportunity to do a, a listening session recently with uh, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and the uh, Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT in the context of their uh, RFI related to emergency clinical trials, in some ways you are our listening session. And so as we're considering different paths and options, it's a great opportunity, Jane, to bring those back to this community, surface some of those uh, early concepts and let this community be the sounding board. John, as we're wrapping things up, any any last words from you uh, regarding today's topic or anything else you want to flash for the audience before we tie things up today? No, I, I think it's uh, a, a very exciting time, obviously, to be part of the clinical trials industry. Um, we have the opportunity to to address you know these questions and many others with really, I think, practical solutions. Um, and it's it's just very it's very exciting every day to be able to engage with stakeholders across you know, industry, academia, and government to be able to think about how we can better build trials. Um, this is just one of many areas where I think we'll be able to really reduce um, confusion and inefficiency as part of studies and introduce some again practical steps that will make it easier for us to achieve the end goals of these documents, which are to ensure, um, you know, appropriate oversight and to um, collect necessary <laughs> efficacy data while ensuring patient safety. So uh, excited to keep the conversation going. Fabulous. Thanks, John. Shalon, last word from uh, you for today. 
hard to top that. Um, great conversation. And I am also pretty sure we'll be back here in a couple of weeks to talk more on this topic. Brilliant. Coming up next week, we are talking about alternative site models. And that builds really well on today's topic as we're thinking more and more, whether it's around virtual meta sites, retail pharmacy, sites on wheels, or what we talked about, I think it was around two weeks ago, could visits be hosted in treating physician offices? Um, all of these have different frameworks and considerations for sponsors and CROs to be able to understand where different options may fit in their um, existing ecosystems and very pertinent for you know recent headlines what's what are the additional considerations we need to have in place as it relates to quality and oversight so that we can have confidence using these different approaches going forward stay tuned for that next week amir any final words from austin i will report next week and all the weirdness i experienced <laughs> looking forward to following it on linkedin in the meantime Thanks everybody for joining today. Have a great weekend and we'll hear back next week. Stay well.